James chapter 3, and we are studying here the source of all conflict. James chapter 3, if you're visiting today, this is what we do every week. We teach through systematically the Scripture, teach through systematically books of the Bible, and we find ourselves in James 3, and we're looking at verses 17, 18, down through 4, 1, but let me read for you. Beginning at 3.13, you follow along, I'm reading in the ESV. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we turn our time to the Word of God. Father, thank You for the power and the instruction of the Word of God. I pray that You give us ears to hear, eyes to see, illuminate the truth to us this day by Your precious Holy Spirit, that we would be a people that dwell in unity, that our homes would have unity, that our homes would be filled with peace, and Father, that our church would be filled with peace. And so, Lord, we look to you, Father, may you be our teacher through the Word of God, and we ask this now in Christ's name, amen. In Charles Colson's book, The Body, there's a chapter entitled, Extending the Right fist of fellowship, and, uh, and it's built around an event that took place in Emmanuel Baptist Church in Massachusetts, and when, the church, when a church conflict actually broke out into a fist fight, here is Colson's description of that incident. He said, quote, it was the right hook that got him. Pastor Waite might, he said, Pastor Waite might have stood in front of the communion table trading punches with head deacon Ray Bryson had not Ray's first fist or first caught him on the chin two minutes into the fight. Waite went down for the count at the altar and most members of Emmanuel Baptist had where they had first declared their commitment to Christ. Within an instant, the majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching or shoving. Mary Dahl threw a hymnal. The missile sailed high and wide and splashed in the baptistry behind the choir. Can you imagine that? When Ray's right hook finally took the pastor down, someone grabbed the flower arrangement and threw it in the air of Ray's direction. The vase shattered against the wall and the fight ended when the police arrived on the scene. That's intense, isn't it? You think here in the life of the church, a fist fight breaks out and the pastor goes down. Now, that's never happened at the Grace Church of the Valley history yet, but some of you have been around conflict. 
conflict, whether it be in churches or whether it be in homes or whether it be with a sibling, whatever it may be. But as we come to the book of James, these believers were fighting a man-eating disease of self-centered pleasure that bred conflict. And James has a word for us. But sadly, there's much in the Scripture that talk about conflict or talk about its opposite. I'm thinking Jesus has a word for us in John 13, 34, when He said, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're My disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. And so the Scripture is clear that we need to love each other. Paul exhorted the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so they needed to be of one heart. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. I mean, this is all over the Scripture. I mean, who could forget Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3 when he said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as, a spiritual, as spiritual men. But as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able to receive it. Paul said, you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshy and are you not walking like mere men? Jealousy was in that Corinthian church. Strife dwelt there. In fact, members of the Corinthian church were even suing one another in the court in chapter 6. It was later in his second work there to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. Paul said, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps, he said, there there will still be strife jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. I mean, this is all over the Scripture. I'm thinking of when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, that the book of Philippians, it says this in 127. He said, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or I even remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is all over the New Testament, this theme of unity or this uh, contra theme of, of just a bitter spirit. I'm thinking to the Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 5 that they were biting and devouring one another. I mean, whether it's the church or a family, this is what can exist. And you might be asking, why does that happen? Why in the name of Christ do we see these quarrels and see these fights? I'm going to tell you exactly why. And I won't just give you the symptom. I'm going to show you the root of the problem from the Word of God. 
In fact, in Paul's church at Philippi, he had problems there too. Two women, Euodia and Syntyche, couldn't get along with each other. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. As you go back into greater biblical history, Lot caused a quarrel with his uncle Abraham. Absalom created a war for his father David. The disciples created problems when they argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom. But as we come into James, let me bring it a little closer to you. Are you gentle, according to the wisdom that we looked at last week? Are you peaceable? Is your home and is your spirit open to reason? Are you at war with one another? I mean, think about it. We belong to the same family. We trust the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit that indwells in us. And yet we fight with one another. And the question would be, why? Why? James is going to tell us the root of the problem. Now, as you look at your notes there, we come to that seventh feature where our faith is being tested. And it's being tested in relation to wisdom. And that argument flows from 3.13 down through 4.3. And we're looking at four insights that enable you to discern God's wisdom that is needed for a living faith. We talked first about the concept of wisdom. Glance back there just for a second. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who's really wise? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. And here we begin to unpack the biblical concept of wisdom. It's not some kind of esoteric thought. Biblical wisdom is always revealed in actions. Just as faith in chapter 2 is revealed in deeds and demonstrated in deeds, wisdom here isn't an amount of knowledge or information you add up. Wisdom in verse 13 is by his conduct him or her, his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then we looked at the characterization, secondly, and the confusion of worldly wisdom. And we said in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He said it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It is demonic. In fact, he went on to say there on the... The confusion of worldly wisdom, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And we begin to look at those five negative qualities, that when these qualities seep in your life, in my life, in our church, or in our home, or in your personal relationships, there will not be wisdom there. That's not the wisdom that comes from above, where there's bitter jealousy, where there's selfish ambition where there's earthly wisdom, if you will, and unspiritual wisdom. And James even went as far as to say in the Word of God, it's demonic, if you will. And that kind of wisdom, the wisdom of the earth, leads to confusion. And then last week, we begin to look at the characterization and the consequence of heavenly wisdom. And just like we noted earlier, the characterization of heavenly wisdom is marked by both attitude and by action. And we said first that it's pure. In other words, it's spotless. 
And he's making a distinction there from a motive that's moved by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that is the worldly wisdom to heavenly wisdom being marked first, he says, that it's pure. It's pure in motive, pure in heart. It's spotless, undefiled, if you will. Then he said heavenly wisdom is peaceable. In other words, it's peacemaking. He says what your role ought to be in your home, what your role ought to be in your business, in this church, wherever you find yourself in relationship, you ought to be a peacemaker. The ideal there is peacemaker or peace-loving. It's peaceable. And then he talked about gentle and open to reason. And we left off there that it was full of mercy, full of compassion. So I pick up our text here where we left off on James adds there, if you look at 317, that it was full of mercy. And here's where we are. It's full of good fruits. Where, where God grants wisdom, he grants it in terms of good, and he speaks of it here as fruits. In other words, the wisdom that God gives is full, here's what the ideal is, of kind deeds. Now, certainly, we live here in the Central Valley. Good fruit, literally, is all around us. We understand good fruit. We can see good fruit. We can taste, literally, good fruit. It tastes great. It looks good. It's flavorable, all those things. He likens there that agricultural term of being good fruits. He's going to talk. Look down in verse 18. He's going to speak there of a harvest of righteousness in 318. But before he talks about that, he says this wisdom is full of good fruits. And the word good there literally means useful. In other words, it's the ideal of beneficial, that God's wisdom takes initiative in doing good to those whom they can reach for the gospel. So when you think about God's wisdom, it's not just bound up in knowledge. It's not bound up in information. It's bound up in a gentle spirit, a peaceable spirit, a pure spirit, one that's open to reason, one that's persuadable. It's full of mercy, which puts mercy into action. And here, it's full of good deeds. So listen, if you want to be a wise man, if you want to be a wise woman, if you want to be a wise grandma, if you want to be a wise grandfather, if you want to be a great-great-grandfather and a great-great-grandmother, then your wisdom isn't going to necessarily only show by what you say. It's going to be shown by what you do. So here, wisdom, and you can see it there in the text, is full of good fruits. I mean, this is all over the Scripture. If you you could write some of these down in Colossians 1.10, where Paul tells us to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. So he tells us to please the Lord, and he tells us to be fruitful. We understand the metaphor, and he tells us to be fruitful in every good work. Look in your Bible just for a minute. Let me, let me show you this. Go back to 1 Timothy, would you, just for a moment. Keep your finger there in, in uh, James. But go back to 1 Timothy. I want to just show you where this term comes out of good works, and it's replete there in 1 Timothy. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it's talking about the role of a woman in the life of the church, and it says specifically of women in the church in 2.9, likewise also, 
he said that women, in 1 Timothy 2.9, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good, what? Works. He tells the women in the church, don't be so concerned with the external. Don't merely look at the external. But as a woman making a claim to godliness and professing godliness in 2.10, you do that through good works. And good works is, again, a visible sign of authentic faith. But here, back in James, good works is a visible sign of authentic wisdom. In fact, look over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me just show you this there. I think you know as we go to 1 Timothy 5, it's talking about a widow and who a true widow is and what kind of widow should be put on the list. In 1 Timothy 5, 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation, here it is, for what? Good works. A widow, to be added to the list, has a reputation here for good works. In fact, keep going. If she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. In other words, the Scripture, we know that those things don't save us. That we know. We're saved by grace. But where grace is operative... And where faith is operative, it's going to reveal itself in its works. And what James is saying is, listen, if you're a wise great-grandma, great-grandfather, and so forth, whatever your relationships are, it's going to demonstrate itself in works that are good, that are useful, that are beneficial. In fact, look over again, just one more chapter at 1 Timothy chapter 6. He gives a word to the wealthy there. He says to those who are wealthy in the flock, he says in 6.17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says they are to do good, and here's the phrase, to be rich in what? Good works to be generous and ready to share. So this is the ideal of Scripture, that where true wisdom abounds, it's not caught up in bitter jealousy. It's not bound up in selfish ambition. It's pure. It's gentle. It's peaceable. It's, it's open to reason. In other words, you're persuadable, if you will. And here it's full of mercy, and now it is full of good fruits. But there's a sixth feature there. Look down in the Word of God. It says, in addition to that, it says that wisdom that comes from above is impartial. You see that? At least I'm reading from the ESV. Impartial. The idea behind the word, it means to divide. It has a negative attached, negative prefix attached to it, giving the idea of undivided. You're impartial, which means you're undivided. It means you're without vacillation. You're without doubtfulness. He used the word earlier in one six. He used the word in, in, in 4.8. In fact, glance down in your Bible just at the next chapter in James 4.8 where he talks about the same word there. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
And then he says, purify your hearts. And here's the word, you double-minded. And so here, when you have wisdom that comes from above, it gives you an impartiality as you're talking with people in the context of relationships. And so here, the world's wisdom on the opposite is characterized by vacillation. But God's wisdom is impartial. It's unwavering, if you will, in its commitment. And and look at that last feature there. The last quality in that list is that it says here, sincere. Sincere. Heavenly wisdom is sincere. It, It means, you could say sincere. That's a positive way to say it. And ESV translated it as that. But the word means without hypocrisy. In other words, where, where you become a wise man, a wise woman, and as you think about relationships, it means that you're conducting yourself with sincerity. In other words, in your heart, in your life, there's not a selfish motive, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. No, you're sincere. You're without hypocrisy. In fact, this word is very interesting. Maybe you've heard this before, but... That word sincere or without hypocrisy was characteristic in, back in the biblical times in ancient Greek drama. And what an actor would do on the stage is an actor would go onto a particular stage. He's playing a role. He's an actor, an actress, so forth. And often in those times, the actor would play two or three roles in the same play. And often while he was on the stage, he would just, if you will, uh, take, if you will, hold a different mask up. And when he held the different mask up, he was playing that particular role. Then when he changed into another role, he put another mask up in front of his particular face. He would change to another character and put on a different one and so forth. In some instances, the actors would be both the hero and the villain in the same play. And that actor was actually called a hypocrite. It's the name of him. Now, we would see that negative, and I understand that. They, back then, it was just a role he was playing, but he was called a hypocrite. And as the word found its way into our culture, it now would describe a two-faced individual who, be, who hides behind the mask of a false life. And so what James is saying to us, listen, when you're dealing with people, okay, you need to be sincere. You need to be without pretense. You need to be without hypocrisy. In fact, Paul used the word in Romans 12, 9, when he says, let love be genuine. In other words, let your love really be authentic. Let it be genuine or let it be, in this word, sincere or without hypocrisy. In fact, Peter used the word when he talked about having purified your souls in obedience to the truth. He said, for a sincere brotherly love, he says, love one another from a pure heart. So as you think back of your relationships, what marks them? Is it the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, marked by wrong motives? Or do you have the wisdom that comes from above that demonstrates itself in a pure motive, but is gentle with people, is reasonable with people, is full of mercy towards people, is full of good fruit towards people, and here it's impartial and sincere. 
So that's what the wisdom of above it defines itself as. You say, what's the result of that kind of lifestyle? Look at verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness, he says there, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I bring you here to the consequence of heavenly wisdom is that when you're manifested in the wisdom that comes from above, rather than producing chaos back in chapter 3, or disorder, if you will, your peace and the way you live in wisdom is going to result here in peace. And he's talking here about a crop, if you will. It's a crop of righteousness cannot be produced in a climate of bitterness or in a climate of selfish ambition. And so when he talks, look there again in verse 18, he talks about that harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. In other words, it's sown in peaceful acts, verse 18, by those who make peace. In other words, the people who sow that peace often enjoy the results of a harvest of righteousness, and righteousness is going to flourish in a climate of peace. So when heavenly wisdom is lived out, it can bring an end to strife. It can bring an end to angry tempers. It can diffuse a very, very hostile situation. In fact, I'm thinking here of that word in verse 18 for peace. Peace, as you know, is a fruit of the what? Spirit, right? When your life is under the control of the Spirit of God, it's going to show itself and demonstrate itself in peace. Jesus, of course, said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So God's wisdom produces peace. Wisdom of the world produces quarrels. So then you ask this question, what gets in the way then? What gets in the way of wisdom? And what gets in the way of wisdom is conflict. And look down again at your Bible, and I want you to see this transition in the text. We've got a chapter break there, but remember, this is just a letter that James wrote. He continues on with here, number four, the conflict of wisdom. And he says there to us, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And I want you to see him just continuing in his thought here, okay? Now, to help us understand the source of all conflict, you can see it. Look down in verse 1. He asks us two rhetorical questions. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the first question. He says, is it not this? That your passions, second question, are at war within you. He asks two questions, okay? Now, as we walk through this, let me just, you have it there in your notes. First, what he does is he diagnoses the external condition, okay? He just identifies the symptoms first, the symptoms of the problem. Do you see it there? Look in 4.1. He says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights? That word for quarrels there is mache. It just literally means battle. Or it's talking about a fighting there or skirmishes. Or if you even lift it up a little bit, he's talking about outburst of passions. There's quarrels. And, And he's here just dealing with the diagnosing, if you will, the external condition. 
And these, this word here just kind of describes battles of every kind, whether it's battles of words, legal battles, and, and in some cases, it just talks about out what outright war is quarrels. But he has a second word in there. Look at it again in four one. He says, and what causes fights among you? That word for fight just spoke of a, of a literal war at times in the Scripture. It spoke of lasting resentment. It spoke of hostility. And both of those words describe ver- verbal di- disputes, if you will, in personal relationships. So what gets in the way of God's wisdom? It's this. It, it's these type of words. In fact, it, it's very fascinating that he comes into this passage right off the heels of James 3, 1 through 12 that we studied. Okay? There we were studying the uncontrollable tongue. And here you get the idea that this flock, this group of people were at each other's throats. Now James asked this question, and I'm asking it of you. Where do these quarrels and fights come from? And he answers that question with a second question that elicits affirmative reply. Look what he says in one. He says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Implied answer is yes. So he takes us, if you will, from the external condition to secondly, he discovers the cause Now, this is just a rich truth here. It will help you understand why there's issues wherever they are and where they come from. Look what he says again in the Word of God. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, that word there for passion, sometimes translated different places, sometimes the word just means pleasures. So you can load it up. It's here, ESV, passions. Sometimes it's the word pleasures. The, the, the NIV translate that word uh, desires, if you will. But it's the Greek word, and you'll understand it. It's the Greek word hedone. And it's obviously we get our English word hedonism from it. Sometimes it's translated lust. But here what gets in the way... Huh, of personal relationships, I don't care where they are, okay? They could be in our church. They could be in our home. They could be in our political offices. They could be global. Here's the exact problem, okay? And this is because this is the truth of the Word of God. You don't need a psychologist to help you diagnose the problem. This is the Word of God. He says, what causes fights? What causes quarrels? Here's the answer. It's your hedone that lives within you is, is what he's saying. Now, this, these passions, you say, what are they in one? It is a desire to live for self. It is a desire to please self. It is a desire to gratify self. It is a passion or a desire that wants to be immediately satisfied. Now, it could be in many different ways. It could be a desire, a passion for money. It could be a passion for power. It could be a, a passion for prestige, for respect. It could be bodily lust. And when these passions rule, there is quarrels and there is fights and there are wars, if you will, breaking out everywhere. 
Now, this word is all over the New Testament. I think it's interesting that it often describes someone who didn't know the Lord. I'm thinking of in Paul when he wrote to Timothy, and he said that men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers. He said disobedient you know, to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. And then Paul said, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In other words, that's that same word here, lovers of pleasure. That's what that word means. And what gets in the way of our personal relationships and what gets in the way of God's wisdom is this, your hedone gets in the way. Your passions get in the way. And here, they were characterized by those in the world. I'm thinking, you certainly remember when Jesus was talking about the four soils. And he said, the one soil, the seed fell among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the word. And as they go on their way, they are choked. And it says that the worries of riches, and then it says, and the pleasures there's our word, passions of this life bring no fruit to maturity. So you got some people where these passions, they live for self, and here it even diverts them from the gospel. In fact, I'm thinking even when Paul wrote to Titus and he said, we were once ourselves foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lust and pleasures, or lust and passions is the word. So listen, let me pull this back together. The scripture is profound here. Listen, the root of all conflict in the home or in the church or in the, it, at the workplace, listen, this is biblical truth, is not the environment. It is not hereditary, your, your, your genes. It is not your spouse. It is not the result of a job. It is an individual's pursuit of his own passion and pleasure. That's the problem. And whether it's global war or whether it's regional war, whether it's gang war or family war, it finds its source in hedonistic passions and desires. In fact, look what he says. Look in 4.2. He says, and he uses a different word there. He says, you desire, that's the word for lust, you desire and do not have, so you, what? Murder. See, these passions then are a desire to rule. They are a desire to control. They are a desire to please self. And the source that James says is within So listen, every outward belligerent action is an eruption, is a symptom of an inward selfish desire and pleasure. That's what the Word of God says. In fact, Motyer, the commentator, said all our passions, he said, are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts, end of quote. And so the thirst for passion, for pleasure, is destroying our thirst for God, and it's wrecking havoc in our homes and in our churches. And so there he describes, as you see there, that conflict that he gives to us. But look thirdly, he describes the inner conflict. He goes from the cause to the internal 
conflict. Now look what he says there in 4.1. He says, is, this, is it not this that your passions, look what he says, are at war within you. And, and he mentions that ideal of war. It's the word for an armed camp. It's, it's the ideal of a continual battle. He's not talking about a single battle. He says these passions, even within a believer, are at war within you. Hebert, the commentator, says that he depicts passions as soldiers carrying on a military campaign aimed at securing the satisfaction of their cravings. So that's what happens. Now, these passions are at war. Look at the text again in 4.1. Are at war, what does he say? Within you. In other words, they're in you. They're not just in your spouse, but they're inside you, inside me. You say, well, what do you mean, pastor? I'm new in Christ. Yes, I'm new in Christ. You're new in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. But when you come to Christ, you still have passions that, that are renegade, if you will. I, I like to call it sometimes the unredeemed flesh. You still, until you get to glory, until I get to glory, are going to struggle with sin. And you're going to struggle with these passions that you're not quite sure where they come from. But the Bible's very clear. Where they come is from where? From within you is the thought. Okay? It is a continual war. It's not just simply a skirmish you win, but a battle until glory. Listen, believers. An alien has intruded itself and it is in you. It campaigns against the spirit that is in you. An enemy has occupied us, and the enemy is us. So listen, this is why we still struggle. This is why there's still quarrels. This is why there's still fights. And the root of it, at the, at the root of it, is these passions that lurk within us. And it wages war, if you will, against the spirit so that you can't do the things that you please. And so here, let me say it this way, the fights and the quarrels are merely external symptoms of an inward passion and desire that seeks to please self. You know, if you can get married couples to understand this, there'll be a lot more wisdom in the home, right? There'll be a lot more wisdom when you begin to think, oh man, I... I still have, I don't know what you call it, unredeemed flesh still living in me. I still have renegade desires. In fact, if you will, just turn right a few pages. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, here's the thought. Peter says there, 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Now he's talking to believers, right? abstain from, here's the word, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your, what? Soul. Listen, you carry an enemy in your bosom, if you will. And the believer has been invaded by an alien army which is always campaigning against the believer's soul. And these passions, I want you to know, are on active service. 
And if you walk into your home and you walk into leadership and you're not aware of this, that you want to gratify self, please self, and show no dis, you know, you know, no opportunity for someone else, and you come off and you get a pound of flesh and you sure give them your two cents, then listen, you're going to end up not with God's wisdom, you're going to end up with earthly wisdom. Let me show you this. Look over in Romans, okay, just for a second. Almost finished here. In Romans 6, this is not a, you know, and, and maybe even as I'm speaking, you might be thinking, well, pastor, we're new in Christ. I agree with you. But I'm telling you, until you get to glory, you've got a battle to undergo, right? Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. He's speaking to us as believers who have the peace of God in Romans 5.1. He says this in Romans 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He exhorts us, you don't have to let sin reign in your body. You don't have to obey those passions if you're in Christ. But listen, they're coming up against you. Look at Romans 6.13. He says, do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, he says, who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look over at Romans chapter 7, and you're well aware of this in verse 23. Romans 7, 23, he said, I see in my members another law. Here's the exact language. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my, what does he say? Members, it's in our body. So, biblically, Grace Church of the Valley Every external conflict is a symptom of an inner conflict within. And the war internally is creating division in the relationships externally. In fact, you remember when it said this in Galatians 5? You know this well. The flesh sets its desires against the what? The spirit. And the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And so here's what the Scripture is saying. The Spirit is prompting you towards righteousness, towards purity, towards unity, towards peace, towards God's glory. God is on the throne. That's the Spirit's work. But the flesh, high school student, is prompting you, maybe, to impurity, sensuality, passion, greed, dissension, and factions where self is on the throne. And so when you come to this theme of God's wisdom or earthly wisdom, is God on the throne? And are you responding in the wisdom of heavenly wisdom that comes from above? Or are you responding with the earthly wisdom that is from below? But these passions, James says, wage war within you. And they are leftovers of our fallen nature seeking to gratify self. They are rooted, if you will, in our sinful humanity. They desire immediate gratification and are continually in conflict against the Spirit. No wonder Jesus said, we've quoted it many times in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, 
proceed evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So listen, it's passions in the heart that is the cause of all conflict. When pleasures or passions rule the heart, when they rule the home, when they rule the church, there will be conflict everywhere. And so listen, James is just trying to help us understand the truth. You say, is there a cure? Well, certainly there's a cure, and we'll look at it in the weeks to come. But enough for me just to leave you with this on a positive note, okay? Where Paul, you know it, and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, right? Or conceit, but in humility of mind... He says, count others as more important than yourself. Let each of you not look out to his own interests, but also what? The interest of others. So listen, as we move forward, we desperately need God's wisdom from above. And what James is saying is, if you really got the authentic faith, then your life is going to be mirroring the, the wisdom from above. Not perfectly. But listen, if you look at your life, And there's quarrels, and there's conflicts, and let me put it this way. With almost everyone, then take inventory in your heart if you know the Savior. Because if you know the Savior, you're going to get tripped up and struggle, but the passion and the desire of your heart is to honor God, and so you'll be before Him in prayer, wanting to please Him in every single relationship that you find yourself in. 